After that uh, uh, beautiful, excuse me for a moment. I'm going to trip over that one day. I'm moving it now. Um, the, the choir anthem gives me an opportunity to again remind you, I didn't say at the beginning, to, to take note of the Holy Week schedule and do not miss the opportunity as we in a few weeks begin Holy Week on Palm Sunday that weekend to be, be here for one of the um, Easter cantatas, Saturday night or the two services, 8, 11, 8 15 and 11, 11 on, uh, on Sunday morning as we, uh, we look to that. Now I do know because um, Easter is later this year and in the conversations I have, I do know that, that some of you are preparing um, to head back north to um, wherever up north happens to be for you. And uh, in all seriousness, we do want to, uh, to pray a blessing on you as you make your way back to that, part, that home that you have when you're not with us and pray safe travels and, and wonderful summers. And we'll certainly look forward to seeing a lot of you back in the, in the fall. It is, it is, quite honestly, I guess I'll just confess this, dangerous territory. It's, it's a mixed emotion for me this time of year because I hate to see many of you leave. But boy, do I look forward to being able to drive from one exit to the next on the interstate. <laughs> so, so I guess maybe what I should say is I wish all you would stay, but your friends can go back So um, for a little while. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble for that. So um, we uh, want to, this morning, as we look at this next statement of faith as we've moved through the Apostles' Creed uh, in these weeks together. And, and we look to the confession that immediately follows Holy Spirit, which is we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. want to begin, there are both scriptures that are listed there. We're going to look at both of those this morning. We're going to come to the Acts text in, in a few moments. But I want to read to start the last words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And for those of you that are church folks, these are real familiar words to you. Uh, They're words that we quote uh, very, very often. It's called the Great Commission. It is, I think, in many ways, our marching orders from Jesus. I want you to, to hear again what Jesus says, beginning Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus, where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. God. Let us pray. Gracious God, that we would be filled by your Holy Spirit in such a way that that we're spoken to and challenged, convicted, encouraged to live faithfully our faith as you have called us and where you would lead us as the church of Jesus Christ. Speak to us now 
We pray through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the, the, the marching order of all who are called according to Christ. That is the, the mandate that everybody who's baptized in the faith, very, very much at, at your baptism, uh, at your confirmation, at your, your membership, the, the mandate is given in some way or another not only to be filled with the Spirit for your own edification, not only to be challenged in your faith for your own growth, not only to be filled by the presence of God for your own upbuilding, but to do exactly what Jesus says, to go and to make disciples. Every ministry in the world that, that follows in the way of Christ in some way is called to live out that mandate. So for us, the question becomes, if we know that this is what we are called to do, how are we called to do it? And that is the question that leads us to the next profession of faith. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church because church is the way in which God has called us to fulfill this mandate. Church. Now, let's kind of deal first with the elephant in the room. Because there is no question I get more frequently about the creed, and some of you are smiling because you know where I'm going, than this one. Why do we profess faith in the Catholic Church? I have known people who will not say that line because they're not Catholic, Roman Catholic. Now, many of you know this, but, but just so that we're all clear. In fact, let, let me back up for a second. Um, Thursday, I think it was Thursday, when um, Liz Deloria, the administrative assistant, office manager, were one of the office, two office managers, kind of master of all things, along with Lynn Mercer at the church. On, on Thursday, she handed me the bulletin, which many of you are holding, and I try to kind of check it over to see if there's any errors. And one of the things that most of the time that she does is she capitalizes the sermon title. Almost every week, the sermon titles, you know, in some form of capitalization. If you look at your bulletin this morning, you will see that I very, very intentionally said, no, 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 no. Do not capitalize the sermon title this morning. And I hope it's right. Yes, it is. I should have checked. In the Holy Catholic Church. Because this is one place where punctuation is significantly important. Catholic, small c Catholic, simply means universal. That's what it means. It is not big c Catholic. We're, now, now, I do not want this to be misunderstood as a critique, criticism, or any, anything um, derogatory, and I'm kind of pointing backwards because the Catholics are back there. Um, <laughs> you notice how I do that geographically? It's like, they're there. Okay. It's not meant as, as, a, as a judgment against the, the Catholic Church. But what we're saying, in fact, in the, in the hymnal, that word is starred, if you've ever paid attention, and underneath it says universal. And some churches will use that version of the creed. We believe in the universal church. That's what Catholic means. The idea is it, it is 
we believe in the body of Christ, unified in Christ, that as we've talked about in this, the creed is meant to unify, to bring together, to identify those things we hold um, sacred and that we hold in common, belief in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, what we're saying is that we believe that God has called men and women to, to live out their mandate, their commission, their, their um, marching orders as church, as ecclesia. We talk about church. How many of you remember? You remember this? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. There's all the people. You remember learning that as, as kids? Well, it's, it's a cute little nursery rhyme, but, but I think without overthinking it, we, we have to be careful of, of what we understand because we immediately start at here's the church and we kind of create that as, as a building with the steeple and the doors. Well, really, that's not the church. There's the church. There's the church. The church is the assembly of people. That, that word again, ecclesia, that's what it means, assembly. It's used over 150 times in the New Testament, and most often that's exactly how it's translated as church. But it speaks to people who are called together to live out their faith, who are called in Christ to take Jesus' marching orders to go and to make disciples and to live it out. Stanley Hauerwas, my Christian ethics professor at seminary, used one of the lines that I've quoted to you before, but he said that the Christian church is always one generation away from extinction. Always one generation away from extinction. And, and the, the implication, what he's saying there, is that it is always incumbent upon the Christian community to go and to build and to rec uh, recruit, not the word, to, to evangelize, to reach the next Christian community that's coming. And that's not always age. That can be any age. But the idea being you're not born Christian, you're baptized Christian. You know, this is not a, a, um, a, a nationalistic identity. It is a spiritual reality that, that we are grafted into in Jesus. And so that idea being that it's always the mandate of the church to go and to reach those who are not believers, to disciple others. So, so we know the mandate. So, so church becomes the way that we do that. Through the Holy Spirit. That's why the creed goes immediately. See, we, we've talked about God as Father, and we've talked about the reality of Jesus as Son. Now, last week we talked about we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is God present with us. Well, why is God present with us? Well, it's not just, as, as I said earlier, it's not just for our building up, not just for our edification, not just for our blessing, but the Holy Spirit works so that we can go be the church. That we can then go and be the community of people that God has called us to be. To be blessed and to be a blessing. To be built up and to build up others. To be loved and to love others. To live out faith. And that's where the, the perfection of the creed breaks down. Because we go from the profession of the perfect God as Father, the perfect Jesus as Son, the perfect Holy Spirit, to the very imperfect you 
to the very imperfect me, but most importantly, to the very imperfect us. And it does not take any time in the church to recognize how imperfect we are. It does not take any kind of experience, uh, deep experience, in being a part of the body of Christ to realize we're not a perfect people. And, and I've heard it said the church was perfect until God allowed us into it. But the problem is there is no church without us. Now, united in Christ, the power at work is God's power, but, but the church is people, imperfect people that a perfect God works through to accomplish His will. It is amazing that God has done... There, there's no greater testimony, I think, to the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has changed the world through us for 2,000 years. We've messed it up a lot, and yet God's will and work is still accomplished. And God's love is still lived out, and His grace is still shared. And 2,000 years later, millions upon millions upon millions of people profess faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in the church. We believe in the perfect God who works through an imperfect people to accomplish His perfect will. And that is who we are right there. That's us. That's us. So, we know what the mandate is. Well, Acts, again, as I said last week, this history of the church and this history of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church gives us such a wonderful look and picture of what church looks like. And if you remember the story at the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and they go into the streets and they be begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And it says on that first day, 3,000 people were added to their numbers. Understand that was, because here's one of the things that we often get with the mandate of Jesus, which is, well, if we go and make all those disciples, we won't know everybody. Well, after day one, after day one, the church has never known everybody. 3,000 people came to faith. Now, I'm not discounting the, the need for, we're going to talk about the need to, for deep, intimate connections. I get that. But, but right from the get-go, the gospel begins to change lives in astronomical numbers. In astronomical numbers as, it is, as God begins to work. And the church is the way that he did it. And we get a wonderful look then in the aftermath of that day of Pentecost and all those people coming to faith in Jesus how the faith began to be lived out, what, what church began to look like. And so I want to turn to just a few verses. This is all over Acts. So you can read Acts all over the place and get some of these images. But if you go to Acts chapter 4, now I know for some of you that's a little hard to read. I thought I blew that up, but I obviously didn't blow it up big enough. Um, but, but I'm going to read it. So if you can follow that, great. Um, if not, just, just look in your Bibles or listen. Along, But beginning at verse 32 of Acts chapter 4, again, in the aftermath of this explosive growth of the church, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone 
who had need. In these few verses, in fact, I'm going to ask you, Walt, go back, if you would, to the very first slide, scripture slide that I just had, um, if you can do that. Yeah, go back to the one right before that and just leave it up, if you would. Um, yeah, one, back one if you can. There you go. Thank you. This, these few verses give us a little bit of a picture of what it meant to be the church. And I think what it still means to be the church, even though the context and the time has changed. The first thing is this. There was a common purpose. There was a common purpose. Look at the very first line of verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. They were unified in purpose. Now, what was that purpose? Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of, Lord, of our Lord Jesus. They were focused on one mandate. And that brings us back to that text in Matthew. They were focused on that mandate that Jesus had given them to go and to share that good news, to go and to make disciples, to go and to tell others. They understood everything that they did, even their own Bible studies, their own growth, their own worship time, was meant to empower them to go forth and to tell others and to live this gospel. They were unified in purpose. Now this is a struggle for us in the church. Because we often get distracted by preference. And we get divided by preference in the church. I mean, for a decade, the church was at war over the way worship should be. What kind of music do you listen to? They called it the worship wars. That was a preference thing. That's not a purpose thing. Now, that matters, and that's significant, and it's important to people, but it's not purpose. We become distracted over preference. What time do we worship? What, what, uh, what does our worship look like? What do we dress? How, what is the preacher? Oh, I get that all the time. What does the preacher wear? Um, you know, these kind of things. These are all, yeah, no, no comments. These are all preference, preference things. And, and they're significant and they're worth talking about. But the church was unified in purpose. And that purpose was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything stayed focused on the cross. I loved the slide. I don't know if it, it resonated with you um, on the, I think it was the second hymn that we sang. I, I can't even remember which hymn, but, but it was the one, Patty, you chose, and it had the cross at the bottom. Where, where'd you go? Oh, there you are. I don't know which song it was, the first, but I was fixated on the image. If, if, you, if you, you know, can, can, can recall that a few songs ago of the, of the cross that was underneath, that was kind of lit and focused under the words, and I kept, my eyes were fixated on the cross. That's what the early church was, their common purpose. They were fixated on the cross of Jesus. Everything they did was about the cross of Jesus. Everything that they, they moved toward was about the cross of Jesus. And when we find unity of purpose, as Paul over and over emphasizes to the church, some of those preference things, while still significant to talk about, they fall on the wayside. Because we recognize what is the foundation of who we're called to be. And we become fixated on that. Too often, I think, as a church, we've, lost our, we, we've started looking at the wrong things. And when we do that, we become very fractured. We become very broken in a lot of ways. I, the, the visual image I kept going back to when I was thinking about this um, goes back to when, when my son Ryan was six years old. 
When he was six years old, I did one of the hardest things I have ever done in my entire life. I helped coach his football team. This was full padded football, six years old, in full gear. It was so cute. Um, 22 six-year-olds on a field. It was like herding cats. I mean, that's what it was like. And, and I used to laugh. I became very, very sympathetic to, to, to teachers and coaches by, by that experience. Because, again, we would have parents. I'll never forget. I'd be on the sideline. We have parents that would be griping at us. Why don't you run this play? And why don't you run that play? And we're like, dear Lord, we're just thankful we can run any play. Stop. <laughs> because they're six. And their attention spans. And so... The teams that won were the teams that just had the one best athlete that you could just give the ball to and he would run up and down the field. Because it's hard to find unity, you know, focused attention for kids that age. We never could find the trick. Until we had a game one Saturday morning. We were a team, we were on the, um, the west coast of Pasco, or the west side of Pasco. We were playing Zephyr Hills on the east coast. I may have told some of you the story before. And um, we were playing at Zephyr Hills on their field. At the field Zephyr Hills played on was right next to a train track. And in the middle of the game, literally in the middle of a play, the train came by. And all of a sudden, 22 kids, <laughs> both teams, stopped in their tracks and they just looked at the train. <laughs> the whole game came to a standstill until that train went by. Because it, we knew, we knew in those moments, and the referees knew, everybody, every adult on the field knew that there was no way that these six-year-olds were going to pay attention to anything we were saying because there was only one thing in their world that mattered at that moment, and that was watching that train go by. <laughs> and the game stopped until that train got out of the picture. But that singular focus, in a far more significant way, was what the early church was about and what we're called to be about. A singular focus to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when everything we do, when every action we're engaged in, every ministry we undertake, every decision that we wrestle with is undergirded by the idea and the question and the emphasis of how is this furthering our faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can overcome the differences of our preference because we find unity in our purpose. And that's who the church is called to be. Unified in Christ. Unified in our purpose. That's what the early church, and with it, they changed the world. And God continues to do that. So, we find unity in purpose. Here's this, or common purpose. Here's the second thing. Common place commonplace. Now this, you have to read into it, but the scriptures tell us that they shared everything. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they met regularly together in homes, they broke bread together, and they shared fellowship together. The idea being is that proximity matters. Human contact matters. Coming together matters. We, we live in, a, in an age, we've talked, and I've talked, you know, to the point of exhaustion before about all the, the, the wonderful ways that we can connect socially through multimedia and through computers, and all those things are great. But I know 
When I'm away for a month in the summer, and I'm up in Kentucky doing my studies, every night I'm on the computer through Skype talking to Tony and the kids. Every night I do that. But I'll tell you what. There is no computer screen in the world that compares to the joy I feel on the day after a month when I get off that plane and I can hug them and touch them and experience presence. There's power in presence. The church is God's way of pulling people together because of the reality that we are called to do life together. And that means the opportunity to be spontaneous. And what I mean by spontaneous is the fact that in community, we bump into each other all over the place. That's, that's why the relationships fostered here matter, because church happens in a lot of places. Church doesn't just happen in here. In fact, I'll tell you, the second church, the second most common meeting place in this community, anybody want to guess? Publix! We do church in Publix all the time. We ought to be able to take up a collection there. Um, but we do. We bump into each other. We fellowship. We talk. I, when I served the last church I was in, um, uh, Tony and I and the kids, we were living in the San Antonio Dade City area. And when the, the DS called me and said, there's this need, this church in, in Shady Hills, can, can you serve that church for a little while? And that meant for us that I had a, a 45, we had a 45-minute drive to church. And I didn't realize how significant that was until I came to be your pastor. Because I didn't have the opportunity to do life with those people in as much of a way as I can with, with us. Because I didn't bump into anybody. When I left, I was in a different community. I, I didn't have to behave anywhere I went. Nobody knew me. Um, <laughs> And when I came here, I had to all of a sudden behave again because we bump into each other. We, we, we share the spontaneity of life. We share the ability to respond to, each, to needs because we're in a proximity. I don't know if everybody lives in the same community, but I know that there are communities within this community. I know that in Colony Cove and Imperial Lakes and the Gardens and all of these places, there are there's church community happening in those places. I know that you all in those communities care for each other in really powerful ways that you do life together beyond just the, what we do here. And, and in our communities, we, we do life. I, I loved a couple Sundays ago, yeah, hospitality is big, the opportunity to share and fellowship and have meals together. This was part of the early church. It still is. Uh, about a month ago, I think, John and Jenny and I went to lunch after worship. Tony and the kids were gone uh, that weekend, and we often will do lunch after worship together. And uh, football season was over, so when football season ends, we'll go back to Beef O'Brady's for lunch sometimes. You can't get a place during football season uh, by the time we get there. But I walk in, and there's a table right in front of us, and the Cook family was there, and the McRoberts family was there, and the Abbas family was there. Three church families that were there doing life together. Church, church, spontaneity, hospitality, um, caring for one another. That's who we're called to be. And that does matter. And we are not perfect. But, but it's interesting that the first thing Jesus does when he begins his ministry is he goes and gets some disciples. He creates a community. And the 
Faith is always lived out in community, from Genesis to Revelation. It's lived out on people who are committed to a common purpose and in their location, a common place where they can rub elbows and be together and, and be church, be ecclesia. So common purpose, common place, and then here's the last piece, common possessions. This is the part that we trip up a little bit, but look what the early church did. It says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. The early church was committed to a radical generosity. Forget splitting hairs over um, how that gets lived out, and, and that's worth exploring and talking about, but, but get to the heart of what the early church understood. They understood their call to radical generosity. They understood their call was to care for one another. Was They understood a sense of stewardship, which we talk about, which said that nothing they had was theirs, but it all belonged to God. And that they were called to use what they had and to invest it and to give it and to take, let's use the language of Jesus, their talents and to multiply them for the use of the body of Christ and for the service of others in their community and in their world. And so they were radically generous with everything that they had. We're called to be a community, community of radical generosity that understands that we are but stewards of God's gifts. And how we use those gifts are what one day God's going to ask us about. How did you care? How did you love? How did you invest? How did you give from what I have given you? And we understand that's a much wider picture, as did the early church. This talks about their physical resources. But we also know that Paul talks about that body of Christ and the gifts that we are all given. And we've talked a lot about that. Common possession, which means that what we have, case in point, the things that people do around here to give of what they have. I talked about Dave and Dick, the guys who will go up on a ladder. Not all of us will do that. Or the people that will serve in the, the, the food outreach or volunteer at the thrift stores or, or, or set up chairs. I, I could go on and on and on. There's so much here and beyond of the ways that God calls us to use our gifts as a common possession, to live radically and to live generously. This is what the Holy Spirit does through the church. This is what it means to be the holy Catholic church, the holy universal church, the ecclesia, the fellowship of believers. And when we live faithfully to a common purpose, in a common place, and with common possessions, with radical generosity, God uses us to change the world. For 2,000 years, those kind of communities have changed the world because they become the instruments and we become the instruments through which God and the, the Holy Spirit works. And we don't have to proclaim it with our lips because we evidence it with our lifestyle. We give, the world sees that and they want to know what it is about them that makes them different, that makes them unique, that gives them joy and purpose. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The, the good news is you're invited to that, always invited to that. See, there's no, there's no closed-door policy in the church. There is no point at which the door's shut and you can't come and be a part of it because the Holy Spirit is always welcoming. And as the church, we're called to always be welcoming and inviting. I pray that, that we can be faithful. This isn't a you sermon. This is an us sermon. That we can be faithful to that. 
that we, God will forgive us our shortcomings and strengthen us in his challenge to a common purpose, common place, and a common possession, that we can truly be the universal church of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you, gracious Lord, that in your perfection you work through our imperfection. Thank you that you call us to, to, to faith lived out in this assembly, in this community, and unify us with others who are called in Christ to change the world through radical love and radical generosity. And in being a blessing, we find how deeply we are blessed. May that be the truth of our life in Christ, both now and forever. We pray in Jesus. Amen.